tonight um, by reading a quote from Henry Miller. Henry Miller was an author who was alive in the last century. Um, actually, at the end of his life, he lived in Big Sur, I'm pretty sure. <clears throat> and he said, I know what the greatest cure is. I know what the greatest cure is. It is to give up, to relinquish, relinquish. You want more sound a little louder? Could we make me a little louder? So we can hear what Henry Miller actually said. <laughs> How's that? Is that better? Okay, well, thank you. I know what the greatest cure is. It is to give up, to relinquish, to surrender. The greatest cure is to give up, to relinquish, to surrender, so that our little hearts may beat in unison with the great heart of the world. And so part of what we're doing here, part of what Marana Sati practice is about, is about giving up or letting go or learning about learning what the Buddha pointed at when he pointed at the possibility for human freedom and that the possibility for human freedom is sitting right in our seat. That this is where the potential is. And you know, the Buddha of course said it very simply many times. He said, right, he, he teaches one thing, suffering, cause of suffering, end of suffering, and the path that leads to the end of suffering. <clears throat> and meditation was one of the key components of what he taught about freedom from suffering, along with a number of other components, including devotional practices and reflective practices and investigative practices. <clears throat> And med the meditation part, which is a lot of what we've been doing here, as well as contemplating and reflecting and investigating, is a certain art or skill that we develop. And really, maybe I could broaden the understanding of meditation as how do we be, how are we, what does it take, how do we learn to be mindful 24-7? so that it is not limited to the formal sitting practice, but the formal sitting practice is, it's like going to the gym, right? You build your muscles going to the gym, but you don't stop using your muscle after you leave the gym. You keep using the muscles and they stay in tone and then you kind of keep it up, keep them strong by going to the gym periodically. <clears throat> and part of any art, which meditation is an art, the art of awareness really, um, takes some discipline and some uh, 
sense of discovery uh, and some uh, creativity which the Venerable Analia was pointing at last night for us. Well, we, you know, here's the way he teaches it and you can also see what, what actually works for you. How does it actually happen and what's needed at different times and places or different moments of our life. And all of this is in the service of release or freedom or letting go. And we can use different words pointing at the same potential for us as human beings to be free or awakened. And this is from um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, often known as Tan Jeff, who's done a lot of translating and teaches, has a monastery in Southern California. And he, he says, the Buddha's choice of the word nibbana, right, nirvana, nibbana, um, awakening in my translation, which literally means the extinguishing of fire, the extinguishing of fire, derives from the way the physics of fire was viewed at the Buddha's time. So the, the use of the word nibbana, meaning extinguishing from fire, of a fire, derives from his time and place and culture, right? And at that time and place, um, and in that culture, as a fire burned, it was seen as clinging to the fuel in a state of entrapment and agitation. The fire was seen, understood to be clinging to the fuel, right, the wood, or dung sometimes, but the wood, um, in a state of entrapment and agitation. And when the fire went out, it let go of the fuel. When the fire went go, it let go of the fuel and it grew calm and free. Right? Which is a very different way than we think, but a very beautiful understanding of how we get the word nibbana, right? And thus, when the people of his time saw a fire going out, they did not feel that they were watching extinction Rather, they were seeing a metaphorical lesson in how freedom could be attained by letting go. That's, I think that's a beautiful understanding that he's offering us, Tanjaf, and, and that we can start to understand more about what does it mean to let go. And also to begin to see what is, what is letting go? What isn't letting go? And one of the things I wanna say is, because um, often there's so many beautiful understandings in Buddhism and we hear them and we get an idea about them and then we try to make them happen mechanically. 
And one of the paradoxes of Buddhist practice is that it's not a mechanical practice. It's an experiential practice. It, it doesn't happen. We don't do it. It does us. And that's a very different understanding, just like this little slightly paradoxical understanding that Tan Jeff presented that when the fire went out, it was free from the state of entrapment and agitation. It let go of its fuel, right? And so um, often for us, we try to let go mechanically, like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to hold on to this anymore. <laughs> I should have used the book. It wouldn't go so far, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, and there's some, there's some letting go to that. But the holding is not often in the hand. It's in the heart and the mind. I can drop the book and still be totally attached to it and still not have let go of it, even though I push it away or throw the pen on the floor. It's still my pen, and I'll, I'll get it later, you know. <laughs> right. And that's a very common way the psyche works with things. And so letting go is not a kind of mechanical detachment or a dissociation from experience. It's not, we're not trying to push away, deny, pretend. Um, and this is why I so appreciate Saito Utejaniya, because he keeps pointing at meditation practices about understanding. And when, uh, when we really understand, letting go happens on its own. When we see what the truth is, we don't have to do a letting go. And now I need to be really careful here because also sometimes mechanical letting go, not a bad thing, right? That's okay too. Let, you know, it's a little the fake it till you make it <laughs> mode, but it's, but it's okay because the intention is in the right direction. Right? So, so it's very interesting to try to talk about the Dharma because I don't want to reify this way, that way, right way, wrong way. And yet there are some more skillful, less skillful at different times. Hmm. <clears throat> so seeing our intention becomes really important. Seeing why are we here? Really, why are we here? This is from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali. He says, the more we are in, we are in touch with ourselves, the more we feel our innate desire to know and to be who and what we really are. We want the freedom to live as we are supposed to live, to fulfill our potential and I'm adding on as human beings, that's my add-on. And he says, when we don't, we suffer. And that suffering is simply a hunger for our true selves to live, to be free. It is a signal that we want to return to our true nature. 
And so it's a whole different way to begin to understand suffering is the doorway to letting go of suffering and to see that that's what our heart is, that's what's calling our heart is freedom or liberation or what's sometimes called and translated in Buddhism as the sure heart's release. And so it's a beautiful um, way to think about. We could use the term letting go or we could just use the word release as what the practice is about, is releasing our, traditionally we would say, our greed, hatred, and delusion, right? Or we could also just say releasing our confusion, our misunderstanding about reality, about what makes us happy about what creates true happiness and freedom for human beings. And so part of what we begin to see and as part of the art of release or letting go is our identity, right? Does everybody have an identity here? It's okay, we all get that. And it's a very normal Thing to have an identity. I've got a Eugene right here. And, and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Mostly it's a good thing, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, and again, this is where the two truths becomes very important because it's part of the relative reality. Every human being has an identity. Actually, you need to have an identity. It's part of normal human development and an important part of human development is the relatively healthy development of a self-identity, of an ego identity. And it's what's um, tricky about it is we end up thinking that's the end of the story of who and what we are. Maybe and maybe not. Maybe there's more to who we are and what we are than just our ego identity. And it doesn't mean that ego identity is bad. It's really an important part of psychological development for human beings. But it can be um, limiting if we're totally identified with it and we don't know how to disidentify from it. <clears throat> and of course, one of the strongest parts of our identity this is me. Right? Have you noticed? Right? Here's Eugene. Right? And I've seen him change over many years now. But it's still, I still think this is me. And, you know, and relatively, that's a good thing. I, I know that, you know, and it's helpful. And I know where Eugene, you know, has to go when he goes home and all that stuff. But, and that's important, right? This body. But is this who I am? Is this what I am? Or is this one component of something that might be not limited to just this body. 
And so practice is paradoxical because we're not trying to get rid of the body or the identification with the body, actually. Really, if we're skillful, we want to take care of the body very kindly and very directly and as well as we can and also not be totally identified with it. And so the paradox is to be both identified and not identified. And that's, that's a bigger heart and mind than we're used to. We used to, oh no, I'm me, okay. Or if we're really Buddhist, I'm not me. This is not me, I'm free. You know, and some people, that may work. That didn't work so well for me. But, but it, you know, it said, it said that um, if something is in the way, it is the way. And that's a beautiful understanding. If it's in the way, it is the way. Because we, we don't want to go around or past or get rid of or deny or dissociate. We want to see what's true right here. Because in my humble view, and sometimes not so humble, but in my view, the whole Dharma is right here. The whole Dharma is sitting right here. And, and we, we have a beautiful, you know, book of the Dharma that we call me. Right, And this is what we want to study. This is what we want to understand. This is what we want to learn about because it will teach us about freedom. This is where freedom is, right here. Right in, in what's listening to me is where freedom is. In what's thinking, hearing, feeling, sensing, smelling, tasting, touching. One of the tricky parts about letting go is this mechanically, mechanically doing it because we know it leads to freedom, right? And so one thing that can be helpful is not to let go too soon. And this is from a woman, boy, I don't, Debbie. She was a... a Advaita teacher in India. And she wrote this, or this was written about her. She said, I've, people come to her and say, I've ha I had trouble letting go. And she says, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go. But how do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness? with a totally open heart. How do you let go if you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart? The first thing is having the experience of touch, of profound contact with things, with the universe, with, without extra mental commotion. Everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. If you let go before you touch deeply, that can bring on mental turmoil. Many beginning yogis, practitioners, make this mistake. They let go before taking hold. 
they let go before taking hold. The heart is never opened. They enter into a sterile void and remain imprisoned. When you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. So that's pointing beautifully. She says it very beautifully. And I'll say it a little differently. When we give ourselves fully to the Dharma, the Dharma does us. We don't have to do it all. We're just aligning with what's already true. And then reality starts to reveal itself right here. And it already has to all of us. We, we wouldn't even be here if we haven't tasted that truth. And so in the Maranasati practice, we're looking at a few different components of what's true of the Dharma. And one of the key pieces that we've mentioned, I don't think we've focused on it too much, but we've said it, is about impermanence, right? This is, you know, and it's one of the key teachings of the Buddha, Nietzsche, Dukkha, Nata, right? of impermanence, suffering, and not-self. They point to freedom. And, and so one of the ways impermanence is understood in the Theravada is this way. They talk about arising and passing <clears throat> and, they, and death. And they say this, in addition to death in the conventional sense, in Buddhism, marana, or Maranasa, arising and passing of all, away of all mental and physical phenomena and the momentariness of existence is described in the Visuddhimagga. And here it said, in this sense, beings only have a short instant to live. A short instant to live. And it's, well, I'll continue. As a wagon wheel, when rolling as well as when standing still at any time rests on a single point of its rim, just so the life of being endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness, like now. This is the only moment we're alive, is right now. Right? And it said, when this is extinguished, so also is the being extinguished. For it is said, the being of the last moment of consciousness lived, now lives no longer, and will also not live again later. The being of the future moment of consciousness has not yet lived, uh, has not lived yet, now also does not live, and will only live later. The being of the present moment of consciousness, now, did not live previously, lives just now, and will not live more anymore. This is from Jnana Taloka, quoting, talking about the Vasudhimaga. And this way of understanding the absolute simplicity of reality, which was a little bit what Venerable was pointing at, at that moment, right? There's the breath and the, the moment between the in-breath and the out-breath, right? It's just, it's all just a moment. There's just a moment of aliveness and then 
that disappears and then there's a moment of aliveness and then that disappears. And so we can look at the coming and going, the rising and passing of each thing, right? The breath, the step, the thought, the feeling. It's just going And especially when the heart and mind begins to calm or collect, you can actually perceive it. It's perceivable because it's just nothing, something, nothing, something, nothing, something. And it's another way marana is understood in Buddhism is in this impermanent nature of reality, of even being here. We're here, for a moment at a time. <clears throat> and it's often disconcerting to it can be disconcerting to actually perceive that coming and going in that kind of refined simplicity of now, 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 now. And really even the now, it's too, too long, the word, right? It's, And so, as Venerable Analia was pointing at yesterday, seeing the immediacy and the temporality of reality, that this could be the last breath, this moment could be our last moment, right? Brings a certain kind of appreciation for the moment that's here, for the life that is here. And even now, while you're listening to me, I would encourage you, pay attention to the aliveness that is hearing me. Because the aliveness is seated in each seat. And it's such a mysterious and magical arising and passing, moment by moment, of aliveness. And we're so used to seeing the bigger picture, which is a good thing, or seeing the continuity, and then assuming the continuity is actuality. Maybe, maybe it's even simpler than that. But the appreciation for the liveness is a beautiful part of Marana Sati practice that we are here, we are, there is aliveness. And aliveness just, you know, sometimes I just can't find the right word, magical and mysterious and, and beautiful. Not that it doesn't have its dukkha, I'm plenty aware of the dukkha, but also it's just amazing to be here and to be alive because as we all know and are getting more intimate with, it will not last forever. 
And so letting go is how do we relate to this magical aliveness that's right here? And how does that lead to freedom? And I'll say a little more, but the beauty that Venerable Analia was pointing at is summed up in a poem by William Blake, who said, he who binds himself to a joy, or she who binds herself to a joy, does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies, lives in eternity's sunrise. That's quite beautiful understanding of the freedom that comes from not holding on, not clinging, not grasping, not pushing away either, but just appreciating the magic or the mystery or the dharma of reality. <clears throat> and in Buddhism, the teaching of letting go is highlighted one of the places it's highlighted is around death. And there's a very famous sutta, I'm gonna to read to you from the sutta that I love personally and appreciate about Anattapindika. Anattapindika. And Anattapindika is one of our people. Okay? You know what I mean when I say that? He's one of us. He's not, he wasn't a monastic. He was a, a householder. And he discovered the Buddha. And actually there's some great stories about it, which I, I was looking at again. And he just, he can't believe he can, he said, are you for real like a Buddha? There's a Buddha, he's trying. And they, they're saying, yeah, he said a real Buddha. And, and he goes and checks him out. And you know, he's skeptical, which I like. And, so, but in Nathapindika, um, also the first um, monastery was a gift of a Nathapindika, right? Like the Buddha and his followers didn't have a place. And so, and a Nathapindika was already involved with him and, and tending to him. And, um, and he heard he needed a place. And there was a beautiful place called Jetta's Grove. And it's in many suttas, Jetta's Grove. And, um, and uh, Anathapindika goes to the, I can't remember, it's a prince or a king who owns Jetta's Grove, Grove and says, um, I want to get this for the Buddha and can, can we have this? And the prince is like, are you kidding? That's the most beautiful place I have and I love that. Blah, blah, blah. No, you can't have it. In, and Anathapindika is persistent. And so the prince says, um, okay, you could have it. You know how big Jetta's Grove is? Cover it with gold and then it'll be yours. Like that's how much I want for it. Cover it with gold. And Anathapindika had some resources, evidently, and he covers it with gold, which is a big deal. Like, that's a lot of money anywhere, anytime, anyplace. You, you covered 20 feet with gold, it's a big deal. So, and, and he gets it for the Buddha, and he, that, that's part of his generosity and his, his devotion to practice and to waking up. And he stays devoted and practices, and, you know, he's part of the scene, 
in my language, for many years. And then he's ill at the end of his life. He's sick. And, um, and so the Buddha sends Sariputta and Ananda to go uh, tend to him, see how he is. And they say, and now I'm reading from the sutta, and they sit down and, and uh, they say to him, I trust you are getting better, householder. I trust you are comfortable. I trust your pains are lessening and not increasing. I trust there are signs of their lessening and signs of their not increasing. And he replies, honestly, he says, I am not getting better. I am not comfortable. My severe pains are increasing, not lessening. There are signs of their increasing. And he goes, and then he starts to describe his experience, which is not pleasant, meaning it's difficult. He says, extreme forces slice through my head, just as if a strong man were slicing my head open with a sharp sword. Extreme um, pains have arisen in my head, um, just as if a person were tightening a turban on my head with a single, with a tough leather strap. Extreme forces carve up my stomach cavity, just as if an expert butcher, expert butcher or his apprentice were to carve up the stomach of an ox or with a sharp butcher's knife. There is extreme burning in my body, just as if two strong men seizing a weaker man with their arms were to roast and boil him over a pit of hot embers. I am not getting better. I am not comfortable. And so he's telling him his suffering and he's being honest about it and it's, it's difficult. And they respond to him in this way. Sariputta says, then householder, train yourself in this way. I will not cling. That's his, this is the theme and I'm gonna, you'll hear it in many different ways. They say to him, I will not cling to the I, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the I. That's how you should train yourself. I will not cling to the I, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the body. And I will not cling to my intellect, and my consciousness will not be dependent on my intellect. And they, and they continue to, to tell him how to practice, how to train. Uh, and they say, um, um, and train yourself in this way. I won't cling to forms, to sounds, to smells, to tastes, to touch. My consciousness will not be dependent on these. I will not cling to ideas. My consciousness will not be dependent on ideas. And then householder, train yourself in this way. I will not cling to the earth element. Remember the uh, Venerable was talking about the element. I will not cling to the earth element, the, the liquid element, the fire element, the wind element, the space element. My consciousness will not be dependent on these elements. I will not, I won't cling to the consciousness element and my consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. This is how to train yourself. Then householder, train yourself in this way. I will not cling to form, feeling, perception, thought fabrications, 
Um, and my consciousness will not be dependent on these. I will not cling to consciousness. My consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. And they keep going on. And, and I've edited some of this, so there's him responding a little bit. And then they, they keep telling him how to practice. You should not train in this way. I will not cling to the dimension of infinity, of infinitude, infinitude of space. And here, really, what they're describing are jhanic factors, jhanic experiences that can happen in deep meditation. And they're, they're beautiful and blissful, and, and they have a wow to them, because it's amazing where consciousness can go. But they're saying to him, still, I will not cling to the dimension of the infinitude of space, to the dimension of the in." Uh, finitude of consciousness to the dimension of nothingness. My consciousness will not be dependent on these. I will not cling, I won't cling to the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Right? Th these are quite rarefied states of consciousness. And, and then also my consciousness will not be, um, I will not, uh, um, will not be dependent on neither perception nor non-perception. And then they go on a little more, just in a more normal kind of world. I will not cling to this world. I will not cling to the world beyond. And my consciousness will not be dependent on them. And they say, and householder, train yourself in this way. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained, sought after, pondered by the intellect, my consciousness will not be dependent on that. That is how to train oneself. When this was said, Anathapindaka, the householder, wept and shed tears. And the Venerable Ananda said to him, are you sinking, householder? Are you foundering? Are you, are you dying? And he says, no, no, Venerable, I'm not sinking, I'm not foundering. It's just that for a long time I have attended to the Buddha, to the teacher, the Buddha, and to the monks who inspired my heart, but never before have I heard a talk of Dharma like this. Right? So he's getting the deepest Dharma teaching, which you're getting right now, which is about letting go, about not clinging about release. This is the deepest teaching, it said. And then, and they say to him, and, and he's touched by it, he's really moved by it because it's a profound teaching. You don't, you're, you don't cling to, you know, sight, sound, taste, touch, thought, feeling, experience. You don't cling to any of it, they're saying. And, and, and then they say to him, this sort of talk on the Dhamma householder is not given to lay people. This sort of talk on the Dharma is given to those who have gone forth, to monastics, to monks and nuns. And he says, being our voice, he says, in that case, Venerable, please let this sort of talk on the Dharma be given to lay people. There are people, men and women, with little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing this Dharma. There are those who will understand it. 
and they agree with him, meaning that's how this comes to us, is because of Anathapindaka, because he began to erase the line between monastic practice and householder practice in this way. And just, this is a little context, but in the commentaries, what's said is that at that time and place and culture, the fear was if this level of letting go was taught, the fear was that people would not fulfill their responsibilities with family and children and friends and community, etc. And then they realized, and, and this I love this about the Buddha, is that he's not afraid to learn that it could be another way and maybe he's wrong. And so then he realized, oh no, this doesn't have to, this teaching can free people and it doesn't mean they'll stop fulfilling their responsibilities. It means they'll learn something about freedom, which, and because the Buddha was, Buddha was a very responsible person, even though he was totally free, right? And so part of, and so this is one of the beautiful teachings related to dying, because he's about to die. And this is the teaching given to them, him. And so whatever you take with you from this retreat, this teaching will be with you when you die. Meaning when there's nothing else going on, this will be there. Because what else is needed at that point except the sure heart's release and letting go? Because, and this is again one of the few things I can say with a lot of confidence, you can't hold on to anything, really. I mean, when I say you, I mean we. We actually can't hold on to anything. We think we can hold on to things. We have ideas in our mind that we can hold on to something or someone or somewhere or something. I haven't seen it. And I don't see it, especially dying. We're going to let go of everything, body, heart, and mind. And then we'll see what's here. So, the teaching of Anatta Pindaka. <clears throat> and I'll end with a very classic teaching from the Pali Canon. This is a pointing at freedom. It said, enraptured with greed, enraged with aversion, which is another way um, hatred is translated, blinded by confusion, overwhelmed 
with mind-ensnarled people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, and at the ruin of both, and they experience mental and emotional pain and grief. But if greed, aversion, and confusion are given up, are let go, if greed, aversion, and confusion are released, one's, one aims neither at one's own ruin or at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both. And, they, and one experiences no pain or grief. Thus is nirvana, nirvana, available in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So one of the most simple, clear, direct teachings about freedom is the release of greed, hatred, delusion. And resting in what's here when those things are absent. Let's sit for a minute. Train yourself thus, not clinging to the world, not clinging to the world beyond, not clinging to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained. Letting go. Thank you for your kind attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.